This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello, flamethrowers. Shireen here. I am absolutely thrilled and excited to have Dr. Mariam Aziz on the show with me today. I've been waiting for this interview for a long time, and the timing couldn't be more perfect bringing forward into 2021 this beautiful energy. Let me tell you about the superstar that is Dr. Mariam Aziz. Dr. Mariam Aziz is of the Richards Center Africana Research Center postdoctoral fellow at Pennsylvania State University. Dr. Aziz received a PhD in American culture from the University of Michigan in 2020. They hold a bachelor in arts degree in African-American studies from Columbia University. And Dr. Aziz's research asks how folks who practice unarmed self-defense contributed to black power organizing and shifting ideas about liberation and gender. It also traces how learning of martial arts was facilitated by U.S. military occupation during the Cold War. Dr. Aziz's work was showcased in the 2017-2018 exhibit Black Power at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture for which Dr. Aziz was a contributing writer and a curator for the sections on popular culture and black exploitation film. As a scholar activist, Dr. Aziz regularly teaches radically inclusive self-defense classes in person and now virtually using a 17 year background in Japanese and Okinawan martial arts. Dr. A. Salam, hello. I'm so excited to be here. I think I, I messed up my own number of martial arts years, but that doesn't matter. Walaikum as salam. And secondly, I read your bio. I was like, damn, girl, mashallah, wow. Like, I, I just am very excited to talk to you for all the various reasons that you are hype and you are great and your scholarship I'm so excited about and now that I'm in grad school I actually have access to it which is very even more exciting for me so we have many things to talk about we can get into Cobra Kai which I do want to talk to but we actually had a discussion me Jess and Amira about Cobra Kai in one of our Patreon episodes but I'm so glad you're here to talk about it now and actually not just talk about the storylines and all those things, but actually talk about the beautiful practice. And can you tell me, I have a couple of questions for you, how you got into that practice and why was it that specific practice that drew you to it or you got involved in it? Wow, that's a great question to start off with. Um, and I should say, it's. I think it's now that I just had my birthday because I'm a Capricorn, I think it's 18 years in the martial arts. So that's sort of wild. My father actually reminded me, he was like, yeah, yeah, it's also your birthday, but more importantly, 
did you know you've been doing martial arts for almost 20 years? And I was like, uh. <laughs> Amazing. I love Capricorns. Amazing. You know, we're, we're out here. <laughs> Cap gang gang. It's still our season. Uh, <laughs> Slowly getting to Aquarius, though. By the time this airs, it probably will be Aquarius, which is my rising. So, you know. <laughs> You're talking to like I'm your fave Aquarius girl, so I'm very. Oh excited no way! All oh my oh, yeah. All the energy, all the energy. <laughs> um, but actually, my father. Speaking of him, he signed me up for karate classes. Um, and what drew him to the practice is he thought he wanted me to get into a movement practice and to be able to defend myself. And he had done Japanese jujitsu, so he had never done karate. Um, and so it's funny nowadays, or, you know, a couple of years ago, he would say, well, you know, all that karate that, you know, you do, or you signed you up for it, it's okay. But you know, when I took jujitsu in the seventies, you know, <laughs> they taught us how to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like talking to, um, your favorite old time martial arts practitioner in your own home. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> what I continue to love about karate and specifically, you know, Okinawan descended or Japanese descended karate day is the fluidity of the strikes um i just think i just love to kick so much and it's so popular now to just be like oh i'm gonna kick someone's you know what or as a sign of empowerment but there really is nothing like kicking across a floor and learning how strong you are and so that really has kept me in the practice but it's also just beautiful i think you mentioned this earlier just having to learn the amount of control having to be able to extend your legs forward hold them out retract them and do it on repetition and then be able to string together combinations quickly or slowly there's really quite nothing like it and particularly the autonomy of that type of movement practice and sport. It's just great. Like that is so lyrical as well. That is absolutely beautiful. And there's somebody, I wish that I had done, there's two things that I wish I had done in my formative uh, athletic career. One was martial arts and one was dance. Like I really wish for different reasons I had done those things. And a question for you is as a practitioner of martial arts, do you find it empowering and meditative as well? Cause it's like, and, and, and very much like, in our faith, when you pray, it's repetitive motions and fluid motions. Did you find uh, a commonality in that as well? Like a, from a spiritual level, was karate, and I love your pronunciation of it, um, was was there a spiritual element to this for you as well? Yeah, you know, I, there is. Um, and I think it's really interesting being, you know, Muslim and the ways in which, like you said, movement is kind of you know, no matter how many times you pray throughout the year, there's just something about spirituality and it being embodied and the different Muslim traditions that incorporate that to, to different levels, whether it be in a dhikr circle or just getting down and praying um, multiple times a day. Um, but for me, there's something about the meditation of movement and I like to be in motion to be spiritually grounded. Um, I actually find it really difficult now to, to pray in um, just a singular spot. Like I actually really love being fluid and moving through motions. And there's something about, I don't know, being grounded in a larger world other than yourself, mm. no matter what your conceptualization of, you know, a higher power. And I do, I like to be inclusive of folks that don't necessarily believe in a God, maybe like we do. Uh, but like the idea that something bigger than you is sort of engulfing or hugging your body as you move through the air, um, Honestly, it's one of the only ways that I can remain present. If I don't 
do a movement practice in my daily week, I start to get cranky. Um, <laughs> I, be- <laughs> I become a different person. <laughs> I think as I was finishing grad school, I noticed I had just stopped doing martial arts as a weekly practice. And I just was not, I didn't like feel, um, I didn't feel firmly rooted to anything. And as mm. soon as I started back up, I just, my energy could go there, both my positive and my negative energy. And it just made me feel so much better. And a lot of what I talk about is really the well-being of the, of the art practices of martial arts. I mean, for some folks, they really are just a self-defense practice. For some folks, they're really focused on the sports aspect. But for me, the, that meditative practice is so important. And really, it's the only way I can meditate. Um, one of my martial arts instructors made fun of me once because we had to do the sit in place meditation and she's walking around and I, I'm the only black belt in the room on this retreat. And at the end, she was like, you're not very good at this. <laughs> Oh my gosh. It's like, don't call me out. They already gave me the black belt. <laughs> they were like, you really need to work on this part of the <laughs> the practice. And so I had to find the middle ground of being like, what if I meditate in motion? Does, does that work? So that's something I wanted to ask you, like as a teacher, as a practitioner as well, and as an instructor, and you have to keep up with what you're, what you know. And how often do you train Dr. Aziz? Yeah. So before um, the pandemic hit, I was training um, in community maybe two or three times a week. Um, And now on my own, I try and pick up a movement or pick up an extension of my hand, um, like a staff or something and practice once a week or even just a um, this is quite corny um, and maybe feeds into some myths about martial artists, but I'll pick up a handhold item, you know, and I'll (laughs) and move that at least once a week. Um, So yeah, it's super important. But I, I, you know, over the course of, I guess, 18 years, there were times where I was practicing three to five times a week uh, in community for multiple hours. So I think that's one of the things that I was going to ask next leading into your role, not just as an educator, but also as someone who I found this incredibly empowering. And when your bio said you're, you are a black belt, mashallah, but an anti-hate crime self-defense instructor. And as somebody who in Canada, we saw a huge rise in gendered Islamophobic attacks in 2015. And there was a sweep across um, North America and Canada and the U S in particular. Um, I'm not sure about the UK. Maybe you can speak to that a bit more in Europe, but of women really getting involved in learning self-defense uh, techniques when Doe was on the rise. But as somebody who has been very intentional, and this is a type of teaching you will do for racialized women. And like that just hit me really hard because I think we there's not only the tropes that we're meek or that we can't do it or that you know, this is also not just a physical thing, but it's, you know, our jobs are pulled off, we're pushed, we're isolated, we're intimidated. And when did you know, because I'm sure when you started this, you didn't think that this is necessarily was, did you think this is what you were going to do? And I want you to tell me a little bit about that journey. Like, how did you come to that? How was that born? Yeah, no, I mean, when I, when I first started lessons, I could not have imagined um, labeling myself as a 
radically inclusive <laughs> anti-hate crimes off the fence. Hey, I'm sure uh, little me would have been like, it's a little wordy, friend. Um, <laughs> I love the term radically inclusive. I will be quoting you on that. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of necessary. It, um, it's wordy, but it's necessary because it, it does, it signals to us a different sort of martial arts practice than maybe one we see in different episodes of Cobra Kai. Um, but no, I mean, when I was... I was I was a child when 9/11 happened. Maybe I was 10 or 11. Um and I remember um watching the plane. I think I was actually sleeping when the first um plane hit. I was actually homeschooled at this time. So this makes this is it's a different trajectory. A lot of people of my age were like, well, "I was in school." And so I was technically in school, but my mom homeschooled me at the time. And so the first plane hit and I actually was awake for the second. And the first thing that my mom did was try and get in contact with my sister, because um, my sister is a wonderful human being, wonderful parent, and she would take my nephew to all of these like libraries across southern New Jersey wow. as a one one year old, two year old, um, <laughs> just so that he could be in the reading circles. Um, and so we had to like literally rush and get in the car and go pick my sister up because okay. even in those first couple of hours, we knew that the type of Islamophobic. Um, like lashing out was about to happen, even though we're, this is, you know, the first day, right? We, we could not have known necessarily what the hate crime statistics were going to look like, but we knew, right, given this longer history, particularly as African-American Muslims, you know, my parents <laughs> have been in communities that have been surveilled for the vast yeah. majority of the 20th century. So something happens and Muslims, black and brown folk are the face we run. And so, I say that to say that I had that experience going in as a kid to martial arts, but initially it was very much a, I want to be a badass. It was, I, okay. Mario K. Aziz, want to be a badass. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I think the middle or end of college, I was actually, like so many of us, old school. I was a, a intern at CARE, <laughs> the Council on American Islamic Relations in a former life. <laughs> Shout Mario. out to that fam. Aww. <laughs> Indeed, the former uh, CARE network. And um, we were there in New York. I don't know if you remember this, but I think this is around 2011 or 2012 when um, it was called the Ground Zero Mosque. It was um, this masjid mm. that was being built maybe a couple of blocks away from where Ground Zero was. They hadn't finished rebuilding um, that area, but everybody was like, this is such an insult to the memory of what happened here. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and so we in New York then start, and in other places, then again saw this moment of people being like, actually, we're worried <laughs> about Muslims. And for me, it just started me thinking about, well, maybe we're never out of a moment of sort of hate crimes. Maybe we're just in moments of higher visibility. Um, because we have these moments in which the media is so fixated on what Muslims are doing and it can increase so drastically given the political moment. But that surveillance has been so continual over the last mm -hmm. 20 mm -hmm. or so years that, you know, mm -hmm. even before 2015, even in that moment in 2011, we started to do self-defense workshops out of CARE New York. And so by the time that um, Trump was elected 
in 2016, I was already thinking about a pedagogy that said, well, I don't want to just teach, quote unquote, women's self-defense classes. A lot of the pedagogy coming out of those classes assumed that women were experiencing a type of sexualized or gendered violence Mm -hmm. that was sometimes really divorced from certain types of racialized identities. And so for me, radically inclusive wasn't just about, well, we're not just going to presuppose the type of violence that women are going to face. We're going to think about, well, someone could be attacking you because you're a Muslim woman or a Muslim man or a Muslim non-binary person or someone that wears hijab and because you're black and you're brown, right? It may not just be because it's this idea of random stranger danger. Um, And so that was for me the big... Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed thing that led me to anti-hate crime. And then because of my other identities, I said, well, let's think about all these other categories of people that are actually going to be hurt in this era, right? So we already know that African-Americans and Black folks in different parts of the world are always susceptible to hate crimes. We just don't always talk about them as hate crimes. So, and this was also this moment we started thinking about the importance of Black trans lives. And it was like, well, Mm -hmm. if we're not centering trans folks in our classes Mm -hmm. and the ways in which they're disproportionately at risk for hate crimes. So that's really how my pedagogy came into being. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? This is Shireen, and I have struggled with anxiety and depression in the past. I've often turned to counseling and therapy to help me through. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. But this service is available for clients worldwide. Flamethrowers, wherever you are, BetterHelp can help you. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy, which may not even be possible in a pandemic anyway. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life 
today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit betterhelp.com burn, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they have started recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for Burn It All Down listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com burn. That's betterhelp.com slash B-U-R-N. I mean, I think considering the radically inclusive, and if we talk about Muslim spaces, because you're, you're learning and your, you know, classes and your teaching are not specific and only to Muslim identifying communities, but just that radically inclusive for queer communities and trans communities and what that looks like, and how many lives you've probably saved, not just in the physical sense, but in the, that idea of, of what that can mean. And, you know, coming across you has been so important, not just for my research and work on Muslim women in sport, but just, you know, learning from you. And can you tell me some about it without, you know, divulging in too much information or anything, but just sort of like the ways in which the practical applications of this learning have really affected racialized communities? Yeah, the practical learning. Um, Well, I mean, I think I always start from the, how does it change your perception of yourself and your immediate safety? I mean, I, at this point, I've had hundreds of people in classes and not everyone that steps into a class is going to be someone that is affected by a hate crime. And Mm -hmm. you may not even have to use physical self-defense in your lifetime, but everybody who walks into that class is someone that feels unsafe in a larger world or feels unseen or perceived as weak and incapable in a larger world. And so I think practically speaking, one of the big things that I hear folks coming back and saying they walked away with was, well, actually, I just felt better in my body, right? I went back into the world and I felt a little less afraid to be myself in my hijab or to be in my gender nonconforming body after I left the class. And I felt like I was enough. And I think that's one of the things that really keeps me going is when people say, actually, I felt like enough Um, because I think there has sometimes there's still a pedagogy of teaching for people's weaknesses to say, well, you can't do this. So we're going to teach you this type of self-defense or martial art that's for your type of person that only has these capabilities or, you know, you don't really have much arm strength. So we're just going to show you how to do this because you could never beat a bigger opponent. And usually this is everybody (laughs) that's not a, you know, cis man is basically we're teaching from a moment of weakness. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm always like, well, why are we starting from a moment of weakness? Like if we want people to practically walk out of this classroom and feel like they're moving in the world a little bit differently in their soul and their body, let's start from a position of strength and then let's give them practical tools, right? Not everyone is going to do an 18 year journey, you know, through the metaphorical mountains of martial arts, right? So I want to know that if you walk outside and I teach you how to do a forward thrusting kick, that you are actually a little bit safer and you feel a little safer. And that's something that you can repeat and practice with yourself and community versus if I show you something that might be a complicated hold or grab or, you know, sweep or something like that. And so, and of course, this is really dependent 
dependent upon abilities. And so we have to think about different abilities and disabilities in classes as well. So I've shown folks to say, well, if I show you how to do a thrusting forward motion with your cane, right? How does that make you feel a little more emboldened to walk through the world as you are? So yeah, I think that that's part of that practicalness is not everyone is going to face an immediate physical danger or not everyone's going to face one that is going to escalate into a literal fight. You might face a physical threat where someone's yelling at you, invading your personal space, but that now we've worked on the tools that have boundary set. And, you know, we love boundary setting <laughs> in 2021. Mm-hmm. We love boundaries. <laughs> we love boundaries. So even mm-hmm. just that to be able to say, what's my go-to word to say, I'm not okay. I don't consent to this situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is so important. It's you're pulling in things and sharing them, and you know, in such a profound and important and very powerful way. Um, I'm going to pivot a little bit right now because I love this conversation. But I want we only have a limited amount of time, and there's so much I want to talk to you about. And I want to dig in when I first found out that within Cobra Kai that that was the specific type of karate practice that you actually do. What is it called and what are the origins? And Okinawa is a legitimate place. (laughs) No, these are all fantastic questions. So technically speaking, Miyagi-Do is supposedly based on Goju-Ryu Karate-Do. Okay. So karate as an art form comes out of Okinawa, the Ryukyu Islands, which if you talk to people still today, right, people still see as occupied by Japan or having been colonized by Japan. Okay. So technically, depending on who you talk to, right, they are or are not Japanese martial arts, but they start in Okinawa specifically. Um, and Goju Ryu is translates to the way of hard and soft. And Miyagi is the founder of all of Goju. So Chojin Miyagi, um, who I actually, I I think the show actually does give you a photo of him. I have to actually go back and look at it. But he's the original founder. Um, What doesn't really come across is the fact that a, they don't necessarily do goju <laughs> as Miyagi do. So some of the techniques are loosely Okinawan karate, but there's so many different styles of Okinawan karate that there's sometimes a little bit of a mixing. Okay. And Miyagi himself um, would have been perhaps, he could have probably been the grandson of a Chojin Miyagi, if we think about it. I think Chojin Miyagi is born in the late 1800s. But, okay. um, you know, this idea that Miyagi's ancestors had been doing specifically Goju uh, or Miyagi-Do for hundreds of years, that's a little bit, uh, <laughs> that's a stretch. That's a little bit of a, a historical stretch. I mean, if we think of modern karate comes out of the turn of the century. Um, and a lot of East Asian descended martial arts, as we practice them now, are not being practiced in a 400 year tradition, right? They're coming mm-hmm. out of sort of practices or standardizations that have happened maybe in the last hundred years. So there was a moment where they said, you know, they've been doing that. They've been fighting like this as warriors for this amount of time. And I was actually like, oh, that form, that kata that they do, I think when Daniel goes back to Okinawa, we might have only been doing that for a hundred years just now in 2021. So um, that's really fascinating and interesting, but I mean, so that's one part of, I think that this history of, of Goju, but Miyagi's a real person and that is a real family. It's, and it's not necessarily a, I pass this on to my son, to my son, to my son, um, for the last 600 years. So a couple of questions coming out of that. And yes, there are spoilers in this. Did women participate in Goju Karate as well? Historically, do you know? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, so women come into karate, and I, I don't remember when in the 20th century they start practicing karate in Okinawa and Japan. But I think that a, a way to answer this question is to think about who wasn't really doing karate <laughs> originally. <laughs> okay. I mean, we think that it is this inclusive, like, you know, the farmers were sort of like practicing karate in the field. And really, actually certain forms of martial arts were a wealthy class uh, young men's art form um, as we practice them now. So it wasn't oh. even just were women there originally, but it was about you are the, you know, the wealthy son of a merchant and you're practicing this art form. Um, but certainly women get in there as the 20th century progresses on. But um, originally in Goju Ryu, I don't think that we're going to see as many women in those original early 1900s classes. But certainly, if we think about the long trajectory of the Cold War, across the world, women actually get into martial arts, particularly East Asian descended martial arts, earlier than we might anticipate. One of the other things I was going to ask you is, while we're talking about this Cobra Kai, were there things... Did you love this series? I got the feeling you loved this series, because our exchanges made me think you did love it. I, I loved it until I watched this season. <laughs> okay. This season, I was actually, I just kept shaking my head like, really? Did they do that? I was like, I really, by the last episode, which I, I think I just finished for our interview, I was like, this is utter chaos. I was like, I don't know what reminiscing of the 80s were doing, but I was like, I feel like I'm in just a bare knuckle cafeteria fight in every episode. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. There was a, there was a lot of that. Was a lot of that. So I loved the first season. I thought the second season was good, but the third season I found was really weird. And um, but I will say I liked that. I didn't like Crease. Never like Crease. But mm -hmm. I like that we got into his background because there's actually a really okay. important intersection of the U.S. military and martial arts that never gets talked about. So I was both glad, in a weird way, that we got to go back to Okinawa. I. I I think they could have done worse in those episodes. And I'm glad that we got this glimpse into the U.S. military. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's something specifically that I mean, I have a couple of questions for you, like not rapid fire, but just because one of my questions was, who do you see yourself as as a coach? You're not Crease. Are you Daniel or are you Johnny? Which oh coach gosh. are you, Dr. Ozzy? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm outing myself. So... I think in my early 20s, and don't don't ask anybody that I went to um, college with, because <laughs> I was I was karate club president, I was assistant instructor. I was definitely a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a, a Johnny, but with better with better politics, hopefully. <laughs> Very like <laughs> which, which sensei are you? I'm actually team Johnny. 100%. I'm team. Oh, my God. I'm team Johnny in general. And as an early 20 something, I was team Johnny with maybe the but the self-defense being closer to what Daniel teaches and better okay. politics and I just I can never be Daniel I just I'm starting to agree with the fan myths that Johnny got robbed in the 80s I'm like this whole like men owning women's bodies like plot aside I was like Johnny was probably in the right <laughs> and I was like I'm a Jersey kid so I love to side with Daniel LaRusso but as <laughs> things have unwound I was like god darn it and also I'm just I'm someone who's an abolitionist so I'm like the amount of times that Daniel and Amanda <laughs> run to rely on uh the police but also I guess 
Johnny. You know, I'm just like, there's certain times in which as martial arts instructors, y'all get away with things that if a black or brown martial artist was just rolling around punching people in prison, they would also be an incarcerated person. So I'm just like, I'm not, I stopped seeing myself in certain parts of them because I was like, oh, the whiteness is really coming through in yeah. these martial arts instructors. But I'm, I am team Johnny. But now as an instructor, I have more of like Daniel's cool, calm and you know, collectedness, but none of his um, sort of wealthy, upper-middle-class, white, pro-police politics. Right. That's like, it's such a good thing. And even when earlier you just mentioned about Chris's backstory, because now my kids are starting up with their shenanigans and saying, well, wait a minute, he was probably just suffering from PTSD. And I'm like, no, you don't, you don't, you don't get to do that. I mean, yeah, essentially, immediately, yes. But like, what, the man is like 75 now. Like, you have, you have a lifetime of time to get some assistance to get some support there like I'm not I can't and I do I'm super hugely like not pro-military like totally anti-military but also understanding how the U.S. military complex also uses brown and black bodies in there and just so much of what you write about and so much what you talk about makes me think because tell me a bit more about the connections of military. I know this is what you studied, so you can't do it in like a four minute segment, but tell me about those connections that people like myself wouldn't automatically know and why that was important for Chris's backstory. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a perfect question. So I think that when we look at particularly that original Karate Kid, we think that Daniel and Mr. Miyagi relationship is how everybody in the U.S. gets martial arts, right? That there is an Asian immigrant instructor who has now taken on to teaching the young Americans of the world how to be more centered. Um, and that's actually really not the case. A lot of folks, particularly in the U.S., and I would actually wonder if this is the case in Canada um, and might also be the case in Britain, but a lot of folks are actually training with people who were in the U.S. military starting at the end of World War II and through the Cold mm. War. So there's a moment where Kreese, he gets recruited into that special ops mission. And mm. the, that sergeant says, or you know, I don't remember which rank he was, but he was like, yeah, I trained under this master in Tang Soo Do during the Korean War. And I'm like, well, that's 10 out of 10 real history from Korean War all the way through, through Vietnam, different occupations throughout the Pacific and East Asia actually gave GIs access to different forms of karate, gave them more access to judo, even though judo has a larger history of being a modern sport during the 20th century. And so we see when they come back home that they set up dojos all across the country. And so more or less Asian immigration also partly facilitated by U.S. military intervention, is part of this story. And certainly there are so many important Asian martial arts instructors on the vanguard of teaching martial arts in the U.S. But a lot of it is actually white and also black GIs who come back and teach martial arts in their local communities and also to police forces across the country. So Kreese's backstory actually, to me, feels really on the head, right? And I think it's always important to talk about because if we just think, oh, here's the benevolent Asian immigrant person who is here teaching martial arts, we sort of like erase <laughs> the U.S. military and the ways in which it structurally said, oh, we're revamping our hand-to-hand -hand combat curriculum and we're going to explore it through all these types of martial arts practices for a while. That's so amazing and you're right like this idea that Daniel and Mr. Miyagi had the perfect relationship is very much not 
how, like when I think of my children's experience, like for example, they were in Taekwondo for a while. That's not <laughs> at all. Like I, there's definitely military training there from his, his um, teacher. Um, this is so fascinating. Like, oh my goodness. It, we're so excited you came on the show. I in particular is, am so excited and I can't wait till we have you up to Toronto because I know we have some mutuals and would be so so honored to have you. And now before you go, do tell me about some Cobra Kai stuff that you acquired over the holidays. I oh, yes. Oh, no. Well, I wish the people at home could see it. But so I, I do a secret Santa every year with my friends from college. And you will not believe, but this is what happens when people sort of know you for 10 years. So I guess after this season, I can't really wear it. But <laughs> <laughs> my friends got me... <laughs> Speaking of the times, a Cobra Kai <laughs> face mask. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> that's amazing. Strike first, strike hard. Amazing. Uh, so amazing. yeah, I gotta be careful where I wear it though. It does say no mercy and I do look like how I look. So I <laughs> gotta think about where I wear it. But uh, no, I, I'm very excited. So good prop, good prop. That's amazing. And I, well, I hope sincerely you don't have to require, none of us have to wear a mask for much longer. Um, I'm so excited you weren't burn all down. You are clearly invited back whenever. You're also, you know, our very own Dr. Mira Davis's favorite people. So I'm so excited that you're here and we will be absolutely elated to learn more of your scholarship and more of your work. And thank you so much for dropping all this knowledge on Burn It All Down. I, I'm such a huge fan. I, I I rage listen to your podcast when I'm driving. I literally just have a playlist of <laughs> back to back to back. And that's how I catch up on my sports news is I binge you all for hours at a time. So thank you so much for having me back. This was, this was amazing. Thank you again.